politics makes strange bedfellows. I couldn't help but think about that saying as I began to read and reflect on our gospel passage for today. And of course, thinking about that saying got me wondering just where exactly it came from. And like any good 21st century scholar, I turned to Google to answer that question. <laughs> According to the American Heritage New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, the saying is adapted from a line in Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, which reads, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. In the play, the line is spoken by a man who has been shipwrecked and finds himself seeking shelter beside a sleeping monster. I'm not sure I would say there are monsters in our gospel lesson today, but there are some misguided folks, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They have come together because of a shared political misery, Jesus. Now the Pharisees are no strangers to us readers. They show up again and again in the gospel narrative, depicted by the gospel writers mainly as the legalistic foils who serve to highlight the hypocrisy of the current religious and social systems, as contrasted with the kingdom of God as proclaimed and described by Jesus. To be fair, we do get a couple of positive descriptions of some Pharisees in the Gospels, Nicodemus for one, also Gamaliel, who utters perhaps one of my favorite lines when it comes to discerning God's will. But generally speaking, the Pharisees on the whole are cast as the bad guys, opponents of Jesus and his work, and that certainly is their role here. Joining the Pharisees in our story are the Herodians. Not much is known about this group. They are mentioned on only two occasions in the New Testament, and both times are coupled with the Pharisees. Given the group's name, scholars conjecture that they were a secular political party friendly to Herod and may thus have been pro-Roman. But to be honest, really the only thing we can say for certain about them is that they were bedfellows with the Pharisees because of their mutual interest in bringing down Jesus, whatever the motivation. Our story begins with the Pharisees plotting to entrap Jesus, sending out their disciples with the Herodians to get Jesus to say something they can use against him. The group first flatters Jesus, hoping to get his guard down to lull him into thinking they are on his side and can be trusted. We know you are sincere, Jesus. We know you teach God's truth. We know you wouldn't let a little thing like the power and prestige of a person keep you from saying what you really think. So tell us, is it lawful? Is it permitted, according to our religious law, to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Yes or no? They asked Jesus a yes or no question, and they expected a yes or no answer. The tax they referred to as an annual property tax, Jews resented the levy, had instigated a rebellion over it, in fact. Plus, the coins required to be used to pay the tax bore the blasphemous image of Caesar, claiming he was a god. How would Jesus answer the question? They figured it didn't really matter, for they were sure that no matter how he answered, they had him in a no-win situation. For if he said yes, pay the tax, they could brand him as a pro-Roman collaborator and his popularity with the people would diminish. 
If he said no, they could instead brand him as siding with militant revolutionaries and charge him with sedition. They had him trapped. But Jesus didn't simply answer their yes or no question with a yes or a no. He answers the question with a question of his own. He tells them to show him the coin that is used for the tax, and somebody brings him a denarius. With a coin in view, he then asks them, whose likeness is this, and whose inscription? Why, it is Caesar's, the emperor's, they reply. And with their answer, Jesus has all he needs to avoid their trap. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, he begins. I can imagine Jesus making a long pause at this point, just long enough for his questioners to think they may have actually won. But no, Jesus continues. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Sounds good. But Jesus leaves us still with a question to answer. What belongs to Caesar? And what belongs to God? For what makes Jesus' response so very clever is that he, in fact, avoids saying precisely what was owed to Caesar and what to God. He left that for his questioners and for us to figure out for ourselves. Tertullian, a very early Christian writer and interpreter of this passage, pointed out that just as the coin has Caesar's image and so belongs to him, we bear God's image and thus belong to God. Sure, give the state its restricted due, but all the more are we to render to God God's unrestricted due. The totality of one's being and substance, one's existence is to be rendered to God and nothing less. That's a nice thought in theory and certainly has great theological weight behind it. But how does that play out exactly in the real world? In reality, we fall into our own trap when it comes to living out this instruction. Instead of seeing the second half of the statement as a sort of trump card over the first half, after all, what doesn't belong to God, we tend to see the statement as dividing or separating our loyalties. Temporal things belong to Caesar while spiritual things belong to God. Everything that has to do with saving souls and the worship of God is the church's responsibility while everything else is rightly subject to civil authority. Some even go so far as to look at this passage and couple it with what Paul says in Romans about Christians obeying civil authorities because they wouldn't have any authority but that God gave it to them. And so they believe the church has no role in critiquing the state. And civil disobedience? Perish the thought. The problem, though, is Jesus actually says nothing about obedience to Caesar or the civil authorities. And Jesus certainly isn't legislating the separation of church and state. To Jesus, at best, what belongs to Caesar is relatively trivial and temporary, while what belongs to God is everything, including the realm of Caesar. 
followers of Jesus can be good citizens. But when loyalty to Jesus clashes with the realm of political reality, Jesus wins. Jesus must win. Yes, we have the First Amendment to the Constitution granting us freedom of religion and even freedom from religion for those who do not see themselves as religious. But that was intended to protect the church from undue influence by the state, to allow people freedom of conscience when choosing how to practice or not practice their religion, to keep us from having a state religion. It was never meant to say our faith has no place in the conversation around how we believe our civil authorities and social systems should operate. For those of us who take issue with the so-called religious right and their mixing of politics and religion, it can be scary and perhaps hypocritical feeling to say that our faith should influence and inform our politics. But the problem with the religious right isn't that they are allowing their faith to inform their politics. Rather, the problem is they have let their politics of fear control their faith. The problem is the hypocrisy of their faith that leads them to support immoral and unjust policies that are a far cry from the politics of Jesus. And yes, Jesus was political. If you announce at the beginning of your ministry that you are anointed by God to proclaim good news to the poor and let the oppressed go free, you are political. <laughs> Note that I say political and not partisan. I do not believe Jesus is on one side of the aisle or the other, as I do not believe one side has all of the right answers and the other side only wrong ones. What I do believe is both sides are desperately in need of a moral compass, and that is where the church and every Christian and every person of faith of whatever religious stripe has to stand up and speak out and be that moral compass. That is what being political as a person of faith means. If you are about welcoming strangers, the foreigner living in your land as the Bible exhorts you to be about, stand up and speak out and be that moral compass. Be political. If you are about caring for the poor, believing God has a preferential option for them, stand up, speak out, be political. If you are about protecting the earth, God's very good creation, if you are about health care as a universal right and not a privilege for the few, a justice system that delivers true justice no matter your skin tone, quality public education for every child in a safe and healthy environment, you are going to need to be political. The Christian church cannot sit on the sidelines and be silent. People of faith, people of goodwill, made in the very image of God, who belong to God, cannot be silent. We need to stand up and speak out, and we are going to have to be political. John Stoner, a Mennonite pastor, and part of a group who refused to pay federal income tax because their conscience would not allow them to fund war, once said, we are war tax resistors because we have discovered some doubt about what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, and have decided to give the benefit of the doubt to God. 
If we are willing to give God the benefit of the doubt and avoid the trap, if we are willing to render to God all that belongs to God, if we are willing to pay attention to the truly fundamental biblical imperatives to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with our God, we are going to have to stand up and speak out as a moral compass, and we're going to have to be political. And as we go and do and be, let the wise words of our Pharisaic friend Gamaliel give us counsel and encouragement. For if their purpose or endeavor is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. Amen.